ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is where we are at today. 1 Samuel 16. We're going to look at the first half, verses 1 through 13 of 1 Samuel 16 together today. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my privilege and honor to be able to serve you in the scriptures every week and to be able to open God's word with you, to be able to dive in and see what God has for us. And I'm excited as we sort of turn a corner in the book of 1 Samuel, looking at chapter 16. Um, I'm going to introduce this a little bit of a different way. Check out the pic- this picture of this guy. You're like, wow, thanks for showing me that today. I'm, I don't know what I would have done if I didn't see a half-naked guy at church. Um, it's probably the first time you've seen a half-naked guy at church. But anyway, um, if I was to ask you, okay, if you know, then don't answer. If I was to ask you, what is this guy's job? What's the first thing that goes through your mind? What does he do? What's his occupation? What's he all about? You might think, well, he's obviously a swimmer. He swims with Michael Phelps, right? Isn't that what he does? Uh, no, that's, that's not what he does. Maybe he works in the IT department. Uh, maybe, maybe he's an underwear model, you know, right? Like the guy that's on the box of Hanes or something. Maybe it's that you just don't ever see his face because uh, whatever. Uh, that, maybe he's that guy. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's that guy that comes door to door to sell you the vacuums that are way overpriced and you end up buying one, spending way too much money. Maybe that's just us. We spend a lot of money on a dumb vacuum. Anyway, maybe he's one of those guys. Well, if you don't know who this is, this guy's name, his, his name is Joe Lazon, and if you don't know, uh, he is one of the most dangerous UFC fighters on the planet. You wouldn't think that by looking at him, right? You look at this guy and you're like, I could take him, no problem. Well, if you actually got in a fight with him, uh, then he would probably choke you out before you knew what was going on. He is, he's uh, vicious. He's got, uh, his uh, record is 28 uh, and, and 16. He's won eight wins by knockout, 17 wins by submission. Uh, submission means he made the other fighter quit. Like that's, you gotta be a brutal kind of a dude <laughs> to be able to get that done. Here's the thing. Uh, with, it, with somebody like this, uh, and, and with lots of things in life, not everything is as it appears to be. Just because it looks a certain way on the outside, that doesn't mean that's what's going on on the inside. And we've seen this, we've learned this is the case with good appear- the good appearance of Saul throughout 1 Samuel. Saul looks the part. He looks like the right guy. He looks like he's got everything going from him. And now the Lord actually turns the tables in chapter 16 to show us this idea from a different angle by picking a king that doesn't look like he should be the king at all. Now, why was this new king chosen? Well, because, because of his heart. That's what we're going to see Today, Here's our big idea as we look at 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. It's this, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And if you're wondering where I got that, those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words out of Proverbs uh, 4, 23. Um, and so that's what we're looking at together today. All right, so let's pray. Actually, let's read 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13, and then we'll break it down together. 1 Samuel 16, 1 says this, now... The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? If uh, Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have pr- uh, provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what uh, you shall do. 
You shall anoint for me the, the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Verse 6, So it was... When they came, that he looked at Eliab, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the opportunity to sit, to hear your word, to think upon you, to uh, read what it is that your word has to say. And God, we recognize that your word belongs in the place of preeminence in our lives. That, God, we need you to speak into us, into our situation, into our place in life, and to direct us, to help us to become more like you, to become um, uh, transformed into your image, God. And we pray that, Lord, you would give us a right heart after you. Lord, we, we have a tendency to, uh, to chase after so many different things, that our hearts are uh, far from you many times. And Lord, we know that the only way that we can be transformed, to be changed, is by the blood of Jesus. And so Jesus, would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us insight? Would you cause us to be more like you today? We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So today as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, we're going to break it down into three parts. The first part, verses 1 through 5, Samuel is sent. The second part, 6 through 10, Jesse is wrong. And then 11 through 13, David is anointed. Now, before we jump in, when we began the book of 1 Samuel, when you think all the way back to when we began 1 Samuel, I think it was something like 16 weeks ago, something like that. So it's been a little while since we've uh, started the book of 1 Samuel. We identified three main characters that the narrative sort of revolves around. You remember, it opens up with uh, a couple that's barren, that can't have kids, and they have a miracle baby, and that's Samuel. And Samuel's the first one that comes on the scene, and that's where this first main character, is uh, introduced to us in, in the book of 1 Samuel. The second character comes along, and it is the first king of Israel, that's Saul. And that's where we've spent all of our time so far. But now here in chapter 16, the third person is introduced to us uh, as David. And from this point on, the entire uh, narrative shifts to focus on David and Saul and their relationship with one another. And they're going to be the focal point as Saul sort of, uh, excuse me, Samuel fades into the background. All right, so let's look at this first piece together. Samuel is sent, verses 1 through 5. Look back at verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Here, here we see that this, uh, this chapter opens sort of midstream in the middle of, uh, of something that's taking place, in the middle of a story, in the middle of a narrative. If you, if you remember, chapter 15 closes with Samuel declaring that Saul is rejected as king, that God has rejected you, Saul, that, that he's no longer bearing with you, you are you have lost the throne. And Samuel goes home from this time completely brokenhearted over the whole situation. Do you see it there? It said God says to him, How long will you mourn for Saul? So Samuel has gone home, he's, he's gone home to, uh, to Ramah, and he's just, he's just brokenhearted over the entire situation. This idea of mourning, it means a lot more than just to feel a little bit sad. This is the kind of deep pain that is felt when someone close to you dies. That's what's happening. That's the word that's being used to describe the kind of mourning that Samuel is experiencing. And so this isn't just, oh man, I dropped my Cheerios. You know, this is a lot deeper than something like that. Something is happening very deeply within the heart of Samuel. And waves of emotion are breaking over Samuel. And, and, and I imagine if I put myself in Samuel's shoes, he's sort of evaluating his life and wondering, could this be my fault? Is it my fault that Saul has failed as the king? Have I failed him as a mentor? Have I failed him as a spiritual leader? And even going back further in his life to say, maybe I've, maybe I've failed just as a, a man in, entirely in, the, in that he remembers when his sons were rejected from being rulers over Israel as well. Maybe I've failed as a father and he's just sort of in this state of mourning and evaluating things in life. He's overcome emotionally and God says you're just stuck in this emotional place. He's resigned himself to being pulled down by the undertow and carried out into the deep sea of hopelessness. Can you relate to that? You know what that feels like? Have you experienced something like that before where, where you're, just, you're just sort of stuck in the undertow? You don't really know what, which way is up anymore. You don't know how to get out of it. You don't know where you should be headed, but, but you're just being dragged out to sea. And, and you, don't, you don't even know if you have the strength to fight anymore. You're just reserved to being dragged out into this hopelessness. Well, God interrupts Samuel's despair. And God interrupts Samuel's despair with two things. The first thing is a reality check. See, see what God says here? How long will you mourn for Saul? Look where he puts the focus. Seeing, I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. God puts the focus back upon himself. You see, Saul is out because God rejected him. It's Saul's fault that he's rejected, not Samuel's fault. It's, it's Saul's fault that he chose to, to, to disregard the things of the Lord, not Samuel's fault. Sa Samuel has done everything that he can in his power to, to help him, to set him up for success, and yet Saul is choosing himself. So what went wrong with Saul? Well, as we look at just an overview of where we've been, and maybe a look ahead a little bit, we see that in chapter 13, Saul, he has this arrogance that is filling him, that he, he sought notoriety. He wanted to be recognized. He wanted to be the one. Remember when he offered the sacrifice on his own apart from Samuel. In chapter 14, 
he's filled with not, not uh, just arrogance, but he's filled with indifference. That he, is, uh, he imposes a fast upon his men, and uh, he's just indifferent to the things of God. He wants to do his own thing, his own way. In chapter 15, he's filled with disobedience. He, he has this failure to follow through. That's where we just were last week. He didn't actually do what God commanded him to do. In chapter 18, as we look ahead a little bit, what we'll see is that he fails in preeminence, that he's mad because David's getting recognition and he's thinking, I'm the only one that gets recognition. And then a little, even at the end of his life in chapter 28, he fails in irreverence, that he, he uh, turns to demonic practices and consults a medium because the Lord... Uh, is far from him. Saul has chosen himself over and over and over and over. And so this, this rejection of, God, uh, of Saul by God isn't Samuel's fault, it's Saul's fault. It has to do with the way that Saul has oriented his life. And secondly, not only does God see, do this, but then see what God does? God says, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse. So not only does, does God say, I'm the one that's responsible for rejecting Saul, but also he gives Samuel something to do. He gives him a new mission. He gives him a new work to do. He gives him a new king to anoint. John Corson in his application commentary says it like this. We need to move on, gang. I don't typically say gang, but it's a quote, okay? <laughs> There's actually, so some people listen to so much John Corson that they say gang while they're preaching. And it's like, Bro, you're not John Corson, okay? Anyway, all right, we need to move on, gang. Yes, there are incidents in our lives that are hurtful, even regrettable. Sad things, hard times, raw deals, pain, problems, and disappointments. But we must move on. Why? Because we serve a God who's on the move, Genesis 1-2. If I, re listen to this, if I remain in the past problem or the past disappointment, I will miss on the present move of God. See, we have a tendency to miss out on what God's doing now, not because God isn't moving. It's because we're stuck back then. And if we're not willing to get up and get moving and to go forward, then it doesn't mean God's not going to accomplish what he's going to do. It just means we don't get to participate. That's what it means. And so God calls Samuel out of this and tells him to move forward because one of the best ways to overcome hopelessness is to get busy for the Lord. It's to get busy doing things for the Lord. Get your eyes off of yourself and onto the Lord. When things don't look good, when pain comes into your life, when difficulties arise, yes, there is a time to mourn for some of those things. Yes, there is a time for you to set aside uh, time to feel the pain, but we can get stuck there and we can stay there. And that's what was happening to Samuel. He was stuck in this downward spiral. And what did God do? God gave him a new task. It's time to get up and serve me, Samuel. It's time to move forward, Samuel. It's time to go. Notice what God says there at the end of verse 1. I have provided myself a king. God provides a king, but it's, he provides himself a king. As much as Saul was the people's choice, God chooses David. David is God's choice as king. Now, we see in verses 2 and 3 that there's insight uh, uh, into uh, Saul. Look at what it says in verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, take a heifer uh, with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you will do. You will anoint for me the one who I name to you. Here in this, 
Um, we're given insight into Saul and into Samuel. See, Saul is growing more dangerous and more destructive to the point to where Samuel actually fears for his life. This guy is so crazy, he might kill me if I just go do the thing that God has called me to do. Here's another thing, though. It gives us insight into Samuel. Doesn't this strike you as weird for Samuel? When have you ever known Samuel to be this kind of a guy that would, that would be afraid of a king or anybody else? If God has called me, this is the kind of man Samuel has been up to this point, I'll go. I'll do it. I don't care if I die a thousand deaths. I'll do exactly what God has called me to do. That's the kind of man that Samuel has been. And so the despair is pulling him down into hopelessness, but also into faithlessness. That's what it can do in our lives. You see, all Samuel knows uh, in all of this, or actually before, before that, you see, the thing is, is that Samuel, he's becoming jaded and less faith-filled. But notice what God does for him. God says, okay, just take a, take a heifer and offer a sacrifice. He gives him sort of a cover story. That God condescends to his faithlessness to meet him where he's at. Why? To, to encourage him to keep moving forward. Hey, Samuel, you can do it. We'll, we'll make it all happen. Now, all that Samuel knows is that he's got to go to a certain town and to a certain family. That's all, that's all that he knows. Alexander McLaren says it like this. He, speaking of Samuel, gets light enough for the next step, but no more. That's always God's way. Duty opens by degrees. And the way to see further ahead is to go as far as we see. Samuel's sorrow and incomplete command show plainly that he was but an instrument. You see, what this is showing for us is that David wasn't Samuel's choice. It wasn't that Samuel came up with the idea to anoint David, but that God had David planned out. And I love the way that Alexander McLaren says that, that the way for us to see further ahead is to go as far as we can see. When you go as far as you can see, just trust the Lord with as much as he's shown you for now, then he'll show you the next steps uh, ahead for you. So in verse 4, we see this. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? Isn't this a weird question? I mean, think about the, the relationship that Samuel's had with the people. This is a weird question. The people, they're not really excited to see Samuel. And I think there's three reasons why. Number one, there's division between Samuel and Saul. And certainly everybody would know it, right? But news travels fast. Messages of this kind of stuff would spread. And so they would know in Bethlehem, hey, there's something going on between Samuel and Saul. And so, you know, I don't know what's going on. I heard maybe there's a new king that should be, that's coming up. And so uh, are we putting ourselves in opposition against Saul? Is this going to make some sort of war? Is that what's going on? Is Samuel showing up to, to gather troops and to bring towns under his, his lordship and his direction? What, what's going on with that? And chapter, if you remember chapter 2, verse 33, Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. You remember that? He, like, if that guy, hey, there's the preacher that hacks people to pieces. <laughs> like, are you here? Like, are you here to be friends? <laughs> you know, like, what, what is going on? He's not the kind of guy that you want to get on his bad side with, right? And so he, he did that. And then number three, the, Bethlehem is a small town. Samuel was normally going on these preaching circuits, but he never really went to Bethlehem. The people of Bethlehem would have to go to a larger town, probably like Jerusalem, in order to hear him uh, preach uh, in, on that preaching circuit. And so they're wondering, why are you here? Is it for a good reason or is it a bad reason? And he says, I'm here peaceably. Uh, and then he says, verse 5, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. He says, sanctify yourselves. Sanctify just means 
take a shower, bro, and get some new clothes on. Okay, that's, that's basically what that means. Uh, it's a ceremonial bath and a change of clothes. And so uh, get ready for the sacrifice. And essentially, the sacrifice is going to be like a celebratory barbecue. Okay, so there's different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Some of them, the entire sacrifice, if it's dealing with, with sin, if it's dealing with atoning for, for your sinfulness, then you would take a, a, an animal and the whole thing would be burned up before the Lord. The whole thing would be consumed to God. Or there are other sacrifices that are like fellowship sacrifices and, and those kinds of things where you would go, or dedication sacrifices sometimes, where you would go and part of the animal would get burned up before the Lord, part of the animal would go to the priest, and the other part of the animal would go to you as the one offering the sacrifice. It's like an awesome barbecue, essentially what's going on, uh, a really great thing, and it would be an honor to be an invited guest of Samuel. So not only do we see Samuel is sent in this first piece, but also Jesse is wrong in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 6. It says this, So it was when they came that he, this is speaking of Samuel, he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Samuel takes one look at Eliab, the oldest son of Jesse, and says, Mission complete. This dude fits the bill. I mean, just, just look at the guy. He looks like a king. Now, the word said there, notice it says that he, he said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. This actually, in the, the tense of the Hebrew, it means to say in your heart or to think. This, is, this wasn't something he said necessarily out loud. This is something he was thinking internally. He's like, man, this is, this is God's anointed. There he is. There's the one that God has chosen. He looks just like a king. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, but God wasn't as impressed with Eliab as Samuel was. Why? Because Samuel could only see the outside, and God could see past the veneer of the outside to see what was happening inside. That this is something that God is able to to do. It's really interesting and strange to me that Samuel's falling into the exact same trap that he did with Saul. He said this exact same thing about Saul. Look at his stature. He's tall and he's handsome and doesn't he look like a king? This exact same judgment is being passed upon Eliab and God has to say, no, Samuel, that's not how I pick kings. I don't pick kings because of their charisma. I don't pick kings because of their ability. I don't pick kings because they're bigger than everybody else. I don't pick kings because they can bench press a lot of weight. I pick kings based upon what's happening within them, what's, what's happening within their heart. The heart matters above all else. And this is largely because this is how we're wired as people, right? We, we just... We tend to be highly visually, visually perceptive, and it's not always a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing if you think that that UFC fighter is an IT guy and you pick a fight with him, right? That's going to turn out real bad for you because you don't know what's on the inside as he breaks your arm for you. Um, the, the, the reality is that uh, it can be a good thing for us sometimes. I mean, no doubt you've seen a situation or you've seen a person and you've made a decision to avoid that situation or to avoid them and it saved you trouble or maybe even your life. You've, you've done this. You've seen things and you've been like, man, I just, I got to go the, wrong, the, the other way. I remember one time I failed at this. Micah and I were in downtown Denver. Uh, we were out to eat one night. It was sort of 
it was sort of snowy, a little bit of sleet and rain, and they were doing some construction on one of the sidewalks, you know, where uh, next outside of one of the buildings, and um, you know, we had we were walking to to get to from the restaurant to our car, and uh, instead of stepping out and walking in the street, we decided to like turn and go go down this other way that I thought was going to take us around, but no, it was an alley. And we were halfway down the alley when I realized we're not in a good spot. Like, this could go bad in a lot of ways. And here I am with my beautiful wife, and I have just led her into an alley in downtown Denver. So then I'm thinking, all right, who do I got to punch? And uh, luckily, we didn't have to punch anybody, but uh, we, we got through there and everything. But there are times when you realize, I'm not in a good place. This is not a smart place for me to be. Other times, no doubt, you've seen someone and you've, you've judged based upon the way that they look. I know all about that guy. Maybe you've seen a guy who's got a bunch of piercings on his face, just all over his face, and he's got a bunch of metal hanging out of his face. You're like, I know all about that guy. Or he's got a bunch of tattoos or something, and you're like, man, I, I know all about that guy. Those piercings, that, he's a rough guy. And then you see that guy come up on stage and play drums for worship, and you're like... Maybe I misjudged this. Or mis- I asked Mario if I could say that, okay? So uh, either I misjudged him or Cody doesn't know who he's playing on the stage. One or the other is going on. And the truth of the matter is we have no idea what's going on in people's hearts, do we? You can look at the external, you can look at the way that people look and pass a judgment, and it can be totally wrong. David Guzik says this, all you see is the outward package. You don't see the heart. You don't know why you don't, or excuse me, do you know why you don't see the heart? Because you can't see the heart. This is a statement of fact. He's referring to verse 7, where God says, uh, um, for man looks at the outward appearance. It's a statement of fact. You can't see the heart. We can be far too confident in our ability to judge other people's hearts. You can't. Only the Lord can. You, You just can't see someone's heart. All you can see is what they present to you. And if they choose to present to you what's really happening within, then you can know who they are. But if they choose to hide themselves, then you can't know who they are. You see, our outward appearance, it's not always an accurate reflection of who we truly are. Typically, people hide who they really are. People people typically don't show who they really are. We don't want to do that. We wear masks of what we wish we were. This is who I wish I I was or who we want people to see or others to think about us. And, And we do this to conceal who we really are because we think we're protecting ourselves. But the truth is that we're just making it more difficult. Verses 8 through 10, it says this, verse 8. So Jesse called Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So Jesse has six more of his boys come in descending birth order, right? The oldest, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next, all the way through to seven sons, but it isn't any of these guys. Now, there's no indication at this point that Jesse or his sons know what's going on with this evaluation, that they, they, they don't know that this is necessarily uh, like the test to be king. They're, they're not certain about that uh, necessarily. They could have maybe put it together, um, but there's, there's nothing that would tell us uh, that they know that this is about being king. They just know that Samuel's making some sort of selection. Um, 
Now, here's one of the things that's, that I find is interesting about this. When we watch a movie, when you watch a movie or when you watch, maybe read a book, if you're anything like me, you probably most quickly try to identify with the hero of the story. You put yourself in their shoes, you put yourself in their position, and you're like, oh yeah, this is what I would do, and I would, yes, I would do the right thing that they did, and I wouldn't have done the bad thing that they did, or whatever. And, and, and the truth of the matter is that typically speaking, uh, even though we, we tend to do that, we should, um, you know, we should see this as uh, uh, more like uh, being the brothers, uh, think for a moment what it would be like to be those brothers. I mean, you're, you're, you're the younger brother. You're not Eliab, you're the younger brothers, right? So you have Eliab, he goes, he's the oldest, and he's not chosen. I- immediately, you would think, man, I got a shot. I, I, think, I, I think I can do this now. I, I, before, there was no shot because he's the oldest, and that's just kind of the way things go, but now I got a, I got a shot, and I could, I could do this. But the, the truth of the matter is that as he passes through all of them, it's none of them. Now, this non-choice of these brothers, we, by that, we shouldn't think immediately that they were bad men because they weren't chosen. They just weren't the one that God chose. There's, it's not, we're not shown here that they were evil, sinful, depraved kind of guys. That's not necessarily what's happening. It's just that God had a choice and it wasn't them. That's just, that's just the way that it's going. That's how it's all playing out. So not only do we see that Samuel being sent and Jesse is wrong, but David here is anointed in verses 11 through 13. It says this, verse 11, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now I wonder if there was sort of a pause in the flow between verses 11 and 12. I wonder if Samuel maybe felt a little bit confused, maybe unsure of himself, maybe a little bit crazy. I wonder if he started thinking back to, okay, I heard the Lord. Did I get the name of the city right? He said, go to Bethlehem. Okay. He said, talk to Jesse. Okay, I've I've done that. And he said it was going to be one of Jesse's sons. And now here's all the sons. And it's none of these. What is going on? I wonder if there was a moment of doubt within the heart of Samuel. I wonder if he wondered, God, what are you doing? I don't, I don't understand this. I don't get it. It didn't work. Are you broken, God? Did you, did you mess up? Did you miss the point? Did you send me on a stupid mission? Did, are you just messing with me, God? Are you just trying to make me look foolish now? That's what you're doing. I wonder if all those things fl- uh, were flowing through Saul's, uh, Samuel's mind as he was in this moment. But he assumes, he comes to himself and, and assumes there must be a missing son. Because he's right where God told him to be. God, I'm right where you placed me. I'm right where you told me I need to be. I'm doing the thing that you asked me to do. And so here, God, there's got to be another son. So he says, are all your sons here, Jesse? Have you brought all? Remember I told you, bring all your sons. Are they all here? And and there, sure enough, Jesse has an eighth son, a, a shepherd. And this is a kid that he really didn't think much about. We're given some details here of how this flows, and he really didn't think much of this eighth son. Notice that you know, as they're going through the process and that there's these seven different sons that are brought before Samuel, when they get to the end of number seven, that he doesn't immediately think, I should call my eighth son. That, that Samuel actually has to say, hey, do you have another one? Is there, is there another son? He thought so little of David that as David is out in the field, he's like, yeah, I mean, I got another kid, but whatever you're doing, whatever this, uh, this whole um, interview is about, it's not that kid. It's, it's definitely not him. It's got to be one of these other ones. Any of these other seven are better 
than him. Also notice we're told there in verse 12 that he's the youngest. Or excuse me, verse 11, the youngest. Uh, there yet remains the youngest. Now in that youngest, uh, it also not only speaks of his age, but also his value. That he just valued him less. And not just that he's younger in age, but that he's, he's lower in value. And then thirdly, we also see that he isn't even named. Did you see that there in verse 11? He's not even named. Interestingly, David isn't even named until verse 13 at the very end of this entire narrative, at the very end of this entire story. His name doesn't even come up till the very, very end. He wasn't invited to this feast. They just thought, you know, we're going to have this feast. You know, this kid, he, he doesn't even need to be here. He can just, we won't invite him. And also, Samuel had to demand that he was brought before him at this moment. All of these things show us into the mind of Jesse and what he thought about David, that he just really didn't put much value on him. Now, this, one of the things that this does is it shows us a common biblical pattern. Now, if you haven't noticed this before, then, uh, then, then I'm excited to tell you about this, and it'll kind of change the way you see the Bible. But notice that uh, throughout the Bible, there's a common uh, biblical pattern where God chooses the younger. Think back with me all the way to the book of Genesis. Think back to the very first kids, not Adam and Eve, right? They were created, their first kids. In their first kids, Abel was chosen, Cain was not, right? You go forward a little bit, and Isaac was chosen, and Ishmael was not. You go forward a little bit more, Jacob was chosen, Esau was not. Go forward a little bit more, and Moses was chosen, and Aaron was not. And this is just a few. You can see this all throughout the scriptures over and over and over again. God chooses the younger. God chooses the younger. It's not to say that the younger is better. I mean, I, you know, maybe Breland, my youngest, is thinking, yes, I'm, I'm better than the rest. It's not, it's not necessarily to say that, but it's to say that God doesn't choose the one that you naturally would think all the time. Just because it seems like that's the natural choice, that just, that's not the way that God necessarily does things. And we're given insight into David here in verse, verses 11 and 12. We see that David is young. We already mentioned that. Uh, scholars would say that he was probably somewhere between the ages of 10 and 15 years old at this time. Um, we, we don't know his exact age, but somewhere around there, 10 and 15, I tend to lean toward the more like middle or older you know, teenage side, 13 to 15, something like that. But there's really no way for us to, to know exactly what his age was. We're also uh, told, which by the way, He's anointed as king as a teenager, right? It, teens, God has stuff for you to do. Kids, God has a mission for your life. Do not wait to get older to start serving the Lord. Serve him now. Serve him today. Give him your entire heart for your entire life. It's one of the praise I, prayers I pray for my kids all the time. It's that I pray that, God would, that they would serve God with their whole heart, for their whole life. I don't want my kids to ever have a time in their lives where they say, yeah, I walked away from the Lord and I acted like an idiot and then I came back to God. I don't want that to be their, ter their testimony. I want their testimony to be, my parents introduced me to the Lord when I was young. I loved and served him. Yes, I've had rough patches in my life because I'm a fallen sinner, but I have faithfully followed the Lord my entire life. That is the absolute best testimony there is. Not the jacked up testimony I have. Not the one my wife has, the one that is, says, I've followed the Lord my whole life. That's the best testimony. That's the most powerful testimony. Not I murdered 18 people and sold lots of drugs and stole cars and then got saved. That's not the most powerful testimony. That's a good one. 
but it's not the most powerful one. It gets people's attention. <laughs> but the most powerful one is I follow the Lord my whole life. How is that possible? How is it possible that in this world, in this age, with all this nonsense attacking you, that you've remained faithful to God for your whole life? That is a miraculous testimony of God's power. We see into David that not only is he young, he's also a shepherd, right? We saw that. That's a, a servant's job. They would usually hire somebody to do that. And so this family either isn't affluent or they just didn't care. And they're like, David, you can do the servant job. Go ahead and do that. Also, my favorite uh, detail, about, uh, Sam, or detail about David is in verse 12. Look what it says there. So they sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. See that there, ruddy? You know what ruddy means? Ruddy means uh, that he, he had fair complexion. So, you know, he, he didn't like the sun as much as I don't like the sun. But also, the word ruddy is the same word that's used to describe Esau, who was red. So there are lots of people who would say that David was redheaded. So there you go. If you want to know what David looked like, look no further. <laughs> he was a ginger. He was a... Also, he had bright eyes. See that there in verse 12? Bright eyes. Bright eyes doesn't just mean like his eyes looked good or something. It, just, it, talks, it speaks of his mental quality, that he's a smart kid. You know when you can look into, look into some kid's eyes and you're like, that's a smart kid. It's not every kid. But that, <laughs> I won't say more about that. But you know, you know when you can do that? You're like, man, there is, there is stuff going on. They are, that's a smart kid. This is, this is David. Also, uh, he was good looking. Uh, this speaks of him being handsome, yes. Uh, but also, this idea transcends that to even being ethical. That he had this good way of living his life. That he had this ethical way of living his life. David Guzik says this, when David was called for this great anointing, what was he doing? He was keeping the sheep. Just doing his job, being faithful in the small things and doing what his father told him to do. What an amazing thing. Warren Wiersbe says, God calls people who are busy, not people looking for ways to avoid responsibility. Can anybody else say ouch to that one? Wow. God calls people who are busy, not people looking for ways to avoid responsibility. Look at this. Moses, Gideon, Elisha, Nehemiah, Amos, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew were busy when the Lord called them. God's pattern for leadership is stated in Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. David had been faithful as a servant over a few things, and God promoted him to being ruler over many things from a flock to a whole nation. Unlike Saul, David could be trusted with exercising authority because he had been under authority and had proved himself faithful. What an amazing thing to be said of David. And it's one of those things that I think we should pray would be said of us. God, make me this kind of man. Make me this kind of woman. Make me this kind of teen. Make me this kind of kid. Make me this kind of young adult. Make me this kind of employee. Make me this kind of boss. Make me this kind of husband or wife that I'm given to the things that God puts before me, that I am looking for responsibility, not trying to avoid it, and that God would entrust me with more. Now, there are four reasons uh, that I can say that David was the one. Why, why was David the one? What makes David a man after God's own heart? Remember chapter 13, verse 14, that's what God said to, it, to Saul. I'm, I'm choosing another man, 
a man who's after my own heart and God just choosing David. So David is the man who's after God's heart. Well, what does it mean to have a, God, a heart after God's? Well, four reasons David is the one. Number one, he has a heart for God's honor. Saul was, was consumed with his own glory. That's all he thought about. He thought about himself and puffing himself up. He goes out and disobediently, uh, half-heartedly sort of does part of what God tells him to do in chapter 15 and builds a monument to his awesomeness. That's the kind of man that Saul is. Whereas David, on the other hand, is consumed with God's glory. Even when David sins in his life, later on as, we, as we'll see some, some of the sins of David, uh, we see that uh, he is still consumed with the glory of the Lord. So Saul's sin is primarily out of a disregard for God, whereas David's sin is primarily out of human weakness. David's just imperfect. He's fallen. That's, that's the reason that he sins, whereas Saul just has a complete disregard for the Lord. So secondly, the second reason that David is the one is because he has a heart to enthrone God. Saul considered himself to be king. I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who declares things. I'm the one who gets to set the standards. I declared a fast. I'm going to kill my son because he didn't do it. That's the kind of guy that Saul is. But David saw God as the true king. Saul would serve God to try to get God to do his stuff, to obligate God to achieve his goals. Whereas David served God because he believed that God was the goal. The whole point was was the Lord and honoring and glorifying him to enthrone the Lord. He had a genuine desire to worship God. Thirdly, four reasons that David was the one, he has a heart that is soft toward God. When Saul was confronted with his sin, all he did was make excuses and pass blame. But every time David is confronted with his sin, David takes responsibility and seeks forgiveness. You see, being a man or a woman after God's heart doesn't mean that you're sinless. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you never fail. It doesn't mean that you don't mess up. It doesn't mean that you don't make the wrong decision. It doesn't mean that you don't step on the landmine and everything blows up. David has some huge blow-ups in his life. But what he does do is he goes toward the Lord. He takes responsibility for his sin, and he seeks forgiveness from the Lord instead of making excuses and passing blame. The fourth thing that we see about David is that he has a heart to love God's people. He has a heart to love God's people. Saul Saul thought that the people were there to serve him. I'm king. This is me. I'm up. This is you. You're down. This is me in a position of honor, you in a position of servitude. That's the way that Saul thought, and David thought the exact opposite. David saw himself in a position to serve others. While Saul grows increasingly bitter and paranoid and vicious, Saul seeks opportunities to serve others even when it costs him in his own pain. That's the kind of man that David is. This is the kind of man after God's own heart. Verse 13 then, well, actually, uh, the end of verse 12, God's, God says to, um, to, to Samuel, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. A horn of oil is literally an animal horn full of oil, okay? So it, it's like a, a lot of oil. He didn't just kind of dribble, drabble, what is the right word? Dab some on him? Dabble? I don't know, something. It was a lot, right? He pours a bunch on. So there's oil running down all over him, uh, just going everywhere. Then verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, 
And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Samuel anoints David as king. But here's what's interesting. He won't be recognized as king for the entire book of 1 Samuel. He won't take the throne until 2 Kings, or excuse me, 2 Samuel. He's even always anointed. David actually has three anointings. The first one's here, where he's anointed to be the king in the future. The second one is in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4, where he becomes anointed as the king over Judah, which is the southern part of Israel. And then the third anointing is in 2 Samuel 5, 3, where he's anointed over all of Israel. But notice here in this anointing, something that's really interesting. He's anointed in the midst of his brothers. Doesn't God have a crazy sense of humor? It's like, here's all the brothers gathered around. He's the, this is the dumb kid that we don't even care about. Our dad doesn't think anything of him. He's just like, he's just kind of stinky and weird and out in the field. And, you know, imagine when he came in, everyone else had a shower and everyone else had new clothes and his hair is probably all crazy because, you know, he's out there in the field wrestling with sheep and whatnot. And then, you know, he comes in and he stands there all dirty and stinky and weird looking. And uh, he gets oil poured over him in the middle of his brothers. God says, this kid, the one you don't think anything about, that's the one I'm going to choose that I'm going to use. What an amazing thing that he does. If it was, uh, if, in this moment, it's unclear uh, if anyone knew what this was for other than Saul. And as we look at, ahead in chapter 16 to verse 20, they may have actually thought that he was being anointed as a, uh, a special service to the king because that's what ends up happening with David. But the oil was really only symbolic. It was symbolic of, look at verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. The oil coming upon David was symbolic of the Spirit of God coming upon him. Oil has no real significance apart from being a symbol of God's presence. And David's willingness to submit to God will be the defining mark of when he succeeds and when he fails, when he does well and when he does poorly. So too it is with us. This is the defining mark for our success and failures in life. When we submit to the Lord, when his spirit is upon us, when he is moving uh, among us, when he is doing his work and we're being invited into that, we are successful. But when we're trying to do our thing, we're trying to manipulate God, when we're trying to hide from God, when we're trying to disobey God and just kind of uh, make things work for our benefit, that's when we're failing. That's when we're failing. You see, the heart of the matter is, it's a matter of the heart. Saul's rejection... And David's appointment had to do with the single issue of their heart. Saul pursues himself while David pursues God's heart. And all of humanity, you and I here today, we stand at these exact same crossroads. There is a road to choose. Will you pursue yourself or will you pursue the Lord? And a vast majority of people, you see, there, there are in this, all of humanity standing at these crossroads, all of, all of humanity is in one of three camps. And the vast majority of people are unaware or completely indifferent to God's heart. They have no clue that God has a desire at all. Or they're just totally indifferent to it. They just do not care. They're fully given to pursuing themselves. And so they're clearly on the road of self. The second camp is that there are those who are aware that God has a desire, but most people um, will, uh, will try to have both. They're going to sit on the fence. They're going to sit in indecision. They're going to try to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, one foot in the Lord and one foot in their own things. And, and in, this, in this indecision, it's actually the choice that defaults to self. So they're on the road of self as well. But very few are willing to deny themselves to take up their cross 
to follow Jesus, Luke 9.23. And Jesus actually says there in Luke 9.23 that that needs to be done daily. Why? Because Romans 12, we're to be living sacrifices before the Lord. And you know what the problem with it is with a living sacrifice? It gets off the altar. It has the tendency to get up and move itself off the altar. And so too I find with myself, I tend to move off the altar of the Lord and try to take my life back into my own hands. So which path will you choose? The life that you actually want is only found on the path of being after God's heart. It's not found on the path of pursuing yourself. That's not where you're going to find the life that you really want. You get on that path by recognizing your sin, by asking Jesus to forgive you, and then by his power and strength, you abandon yourself, you abandon your way, and you pursue his heart by following him. And you stay on this path the exact same way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to open it and to see your choosing of David. And we thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us. You've chosen us as, as sons and daughters of the great King of Kings. We pray that you would help us to pursue you, to love you, to honor you, and that your glory would be our highest goal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.